0: So this morning, at morning church, we had donuts, and I saw a little Declan Weatherby, who must be all at two, right? So Declan's eating this chocolate-covered donut upside down. And I thought to myself, as the dad, I thought, you know, I should go over there and flip it over for him so it's not quite as messy as it could be, you know. And then I thought, no, he's got the good side down closest to his tongue. That's what's really going on there. He's trying to get to the good stuff as quickly as possible. And I thought, boy, that is just what we're like, isn't it? I mean, if there's something good, we want to waste no time getting there. And if there's something painful, we want to take as much time trying to avoid that thing, right? Maybe that's why the Apostle Peter keeps talking about suffering over and over and over again. It's because he knows that his beloved flock in Asia Minor is going to be shying away from these hard times. You'll be pleased to know this is the last section on suffering in first Peter because as Americans we don't get it we are not suffering we are <laughs> in such good shape we have chocolate icing covered donuts at a church on Sunday morning where we are free to meet praise God and learn about Jesus but not so with the church of Peter's day. It was beginning to undergo persecution. This is about 60, to 64 A.D. Nero hadn't started his full-fledged persecution yet of the church, but it was coming. But it's not that way today in America. However, it is that way in many parts of the world. I was reading a part of this book called The Insanity of God, and this story so gripped me a couple weeks ago, I knew I was going to read it to you come this Sunday. So let me read. For many years, a Western faith based organization had operated a medical clinic in one of the cities of a large Islamic country. Most of the local population appreciated having ready access to quality medical care. As a rule, the people essentially ignored the staff's religious affiliation and background, the religious beliefs of the medical staff weren't much of a concern. What mattered was the medical care. However, a few radical Muslims were concerned with their religious beliefs. And the most militant and outspoken opponent of the medical ministry lived right across the street from the clinic's front entrance. Isn't it amazing how that is very often the case with Christian ministries or churches? Seriously. Or your most vocal opponent is your next door neighbor. I don't think that's really just coincidence. The Spirit of God, I think, is working in that kind of proximity. So with this story. He owned a shop in that location also, which was only a few doors down from the local mosque. Every Friday, this shopkeeper, whom we will call Mahmoud, would stand in front of his store and stir up the Muslim crowd streaming by on the street as they made their way to worship. Later at the mosque, he would accuse the evil infidels at the clinic of preying on and poisoning and overcharging good Muslims. He would curse and condemn some of the medical staff even by name. He was an angry and hateful man whose anger spilled over as he spewed animosity at anyone affiliated with this medical clinic. Later, Mahmoud contracted an incurable cancer. His superstitious Muslim community considered him contagious and quit frequenting his shop. Now he was not only sick and dying, but he was also unable to feed and provide for his wives and children. The staff of the hospital learned of his sad plight, and many of them actually began to go to his shop to and from on their way to and home from work. The clinic personnel purchased goods from the shop of their most vocal antagonist. They conversed with him, asked about his family. They regularly inquired about and expressed concern for his health. health. They always made a point of letting him know they were praying for him. Eventually, they even began to treat his suffering. And they washed his body when the need arose. As these followers of Jesus loved their persecutor and their enemy of so many years, Mahmoud's stony heart softened. Over time, his attitude changed to one of gratitude and friendship. In his last days, he continued to accept the compassionate and professional medical care of the, quote, evil infidels. He trusted his former enemies to help him die in peace and with dignity. Before he finally passed away at the age of 57, Mahmoud made the decision to become a follower of Jesus himself. Mahmoud's youngest wife, Aisha, suddenly became a 24-year-old widow with four children. She had watched how the clinic staff had loved and cared for her husband after he had cursed and railed against them for so many years. During Mahmoud's last days, she also became a follower of Jesus. After her husband's death, Aisha became an outspoken witness to her new faith and perhaps the most effective evangelist in that area. Her Muslim family and friends couldn't silence her witness, and the authorities eventually took notice. Even though her nation didn't have a history of imprisoning women, the police finally arrested her. She was lectured and threatened with every imaginable punishment. Her captors threw her not into an actual jail cell, but down into the dank, dark, unfinished cellar of the police station. In that place, there was no light at all. The unfinished cellar had a dirt floor. Spiders, bugs, and rats skittered around her in the darkness, terrified and at the point of giving up. She told us that she intended to scream out to God that she couldn't take anymore. But when she opened her mouth in protest and despair, a melody of praise rose out of her soul instead. She sang. Surprised and strengthened by the sound of her own voice, and overwhelmed by the renewed sense of God's presence beside and even within her, she began to sing her praise and worship to Jesus even more loudly. As she sang, she noticed that, office by office, the police station above her had become strangely silent. Later that night, the trapdoor was opened. Light spilled down into the darkness of the cellar. The chief of police himself reached down, pulled Aisha out, and told her, I'm going to release you and let you go home. Please, no, she protested. You can't do that. It's after midnight. I can't be seen on the streets alone. He, of course, knew that it was against the law for a woman to be alone out at night. She wondered if maybe this was a trick to get her into more trouble. You don't understand, the chief told her. There's no need to worry. I am going to personally escort you home on one condition. Aisha immediately suspected the man's intentions. But it turns out he had nothing sinister in mind. The chief of police, one of the most powerful men in the city, looked at 24-year-old Aisha and shook his head in bewilderment. I don't understand, he said. You're not afraid of anything. He sighed and shook his head again. My wife, my daughters, and all the women of my family are afraid of everything, but you, are not afraid of anything. So now, I'm going to take you safely to your home tonight. Three days from now, I'm going to come to get you and bring you to my house. I want you to come to my house so that you can tell everyone in my family why you are not afraid. And I want you to sing that song. In truth, I am certain that Aisha was afraid. She, like so many believers living in persecution, simply refused to be controlled by her fear. By faith, she found a way to overcome her fear. That story just grabbed a hold of me and wouldn't let me go. Again, it's from a book called The Insanity of God. Because we are a culture that tries to avoid suffering. We are a church culture, an American Christian culture that tries to avoid suffering. But there is persecution on the horizon. We're not being jailed, but I can tell you that we are being discriminated against, at least in the halls of academia. If you profess to be a Bible-believing Christian, and you want to get a position in a university teaching, you're going to have a very, very tough road being accepted as part of the group. If you are one of those narrow-minded, bigoted, Bible-believing, fundamentalist, homophobic, whatever, Christians. Because that's the way the culture is getting, getting to look at us. It is going to be the new normal. It's going to be the new normal for the American church. Not right now, but in the future. Peter's writing to people who are just beginning to experience persecution. And I think we're there as well. So don't be surprised when things go badly for you if you claim to follow Jesus in the years ahead. Don't be surprised. Don't have unrealistic expectations about what it means to follow Jesus. The health and wealth gospel, I think, will just naturally shrivel up and die because it just simply doesn't work most of the time. Fiery ordeals, however, are an avenue that God's going to use to draw us closer to Himself so that we can become more true, truer worshipers of God. Because that's the end game of persecution. It burns out the chaff. It filters out the impurities. And what you're left with is a faith that is more pure. And that's what we have to look forward to, I think, with a little bit of persecution. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read this through once, and then we'll go back again and just look at it line by line. It'll be up on the... Screen to my right. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's go back to verse 12. Now, Peter's... Words are, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Those are his literal words. In the past, in this letter, he's used fire as a metaphor for purification. That's what happens. He's talked about crucibles You've heard me talk about my days in the steel mill where we would have a giant furnace full of metal, all kinds of metal and all kinds of impurities, stuff that people throw away. And so you throw all this scrap metal into this giant furnace, you turn up the heat, and pretty soon it begins to melt, and as you keep heating it up, what happens in any kind of metallurgy is the impurities rise to the surface. They just go on the top, and the hard, heavy metal is on the bottom of the furnace. And so you tap the furnace from the bottom to get the good metal. And then the rest of the stuff you dump into a sand pit. Same way with gold or silver. Even in small amounts, if you're making your own jewelry, you'll know about this. You use a small little crucible and do the same kind of thing. But what happens when you apply heat to that kind of situation is the impurities rise to the surface. And when you and I go through fiery trials, when you and I go through problems in life, that's normally what happens. Jesus said it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if you begin to be complaining because, you know, you can't find a job or because you've got a relationship that's gone sour Or because your neighbors aren't treating you well, or because your professors are giving you a hard time. Very often, that kind of thing will bring the junk that's in your heart and it'll come out your mouth. Impurities rise to the surface. And so, in that way, you shouldn't be surprised. as something strange were happening to you because you know that it's God's will for you to become more like Jesus. How is he going to get that junky stuff out of you if not through fiery trials? Now, it's also kind of an interesting foreshadowing because in just a few years, the emperor Nero is going to be taking Christians, dipping them into tar pitch, on stakes and lighting them on fire to illuminate certain parts of the empire. You talk about a fiery trial. I guess what we got to draw out of this is that Christians, as well as everybody else, live in a fallen world. You have to expect these kind of things are going to happen. It's the new normal. We live in a fallen world that is far, far away from God, has no desire to be with God. We want to do good things. We want to do it on our own. And we want to make sure there's a little bit of something for us in the mix while we're doing good things. It never gets beyond the selfishness that resides in each one of us. I don't care if it's a bill going through Congress Sponsored by the senators from whatever state who are making sure their state gets some kind of additional boost from the bill, or whether it's you doing something good for a friend of yours, it's really difficult to get yourself out of the mix. We live in a fallen culture. He goes on in 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, this looks like a worship verse to me. Look at the words. Rejoice, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. I'm going, don't we all long for that, really? When you come to church, doesn't everybody wish that somehow God will just descend and something unusual would happen in the service, we would all sense the presence of God? That's what I come to church for. I want something amazing to happen every time I walk in. As Flanagan O'Connor said, we should hand out life vests and crash helmets to Christians as they come into their church every Sunday, just in case the glory of God is revealed. We're hoping for that. I remember Les Avery, before the Presbyterian church service, he would pray, Oh Lord, Please let something happen that's not in the bulletin. Because he was looking for God to do something. So we get that. But Peter's saying, hey, guess what? You will get that. But it's not going to happen in your church service near as much as it's going to happen in fiery trials and ordeals that come your way when you're suffering for Christ. That's when you should be overjoyed. Peter was paying attention in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. We need to worship because God's glory is coming. We've got to go through the trials first, but God's glory is coming. Here's the good news this world doesn't last forever. Really? That's good news. I can't imagine living to be a couple hundred years old or several hundred years old like they did in the Old Testament. Like, please, no, get me out of here. You know, I remember talking to my grandmother. She's in her 80s and she's going, huh, I'm ready to leave. Her life was one of sorrow. She had seen her first husband die. She had seen her daughter die. She had seen her second husband die. She had seen her sister, her beloved sister that she came on the boat with over from Greece die. And her husband die. Then she had to raise her nephews as her own because people were dying all around her and they kept dying. She would sometimes sit, and she'd be reading her prayer book or her Bible in my house, and she would have these giant sighs. It was like, oh. And I used to think about that. It was like a lifetime of woe. She was ready to leave. Here's some good news. This is actually from Mark Driscoll. If you're a Christian, this earth, this life, this existence is as close to hell as you will ever get. The corresponding bad news is that if you are a non-Christian, if you've rejected Jesus, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. Your heaven is our hell. We love you. Join us. Driscoll said in his inevitable way, he's so cuddly, that guy. But sometimes he spills some truth. And that's one of them. Let's go on. Verse 14. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the Spirit of God and the glory of the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now you'll notice that Peter is not saying this glory is going to get you out of a jam. He says when you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, mimicking Je- what Jesus said. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I mean, if you are being persecuted for your faith, you're doing something right. If people are upset with you because you are too vocal about Jesus, you're doing something right. Now, I don't necessarily think that we are always insulted Because of the name of Christ. Sometimes I think we're insulted because we're jerks as Christians. I really do. So Peter's not talking about that, and I'm not talking about that. But it reminds me of that story of Aisha. The spirit of glory rested on her in that dark police station cell. And she went to open her mouth and to complain, and instead this song of praise came out that captivated the entire police station above her. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. He gives us abilities that we would not otherwise have. I mean, you guys are aware that miracles happen in the lives of Christians. We've had story night over and over again for 14 years at Scum of the Earth. We've had people at the beginning of this series come up and talk about how Jesus has impacted their lives. And you're going, whoa, you are a far cry away from that blubbering drunk girl you talked about that you were in college. It's amazing what the Spirit does. You've heard John Swanger's testimony. Hope it's okay if I talk about this, John. (laughs) where in the night that he became a christian he started three grams of cocaine stayed up all night read the new testament and was a christian by morning now the rest of the miracle is that he never went back to it again the cocaine never went back to it how is that possible I'll say, by the same token, anybody who has struggled with any kind of addiction over 10, 20, 30 years and comes out free and clear at some point in their lives, that is no less a miracle of God than God doing it all in one second. We see the Holy Spirit do things that we are not able to do as people. It's amazing. We worship in those difficult situations because the Spirit of God rests upon us. How do we think that Jesus endured all the stuff that He did? He was a man just like us. He lived a life just like us, the Scripture says. He didn't use any of His own God power. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit the same as we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to get Him through the torture, the crucifixion. And before that all the abuse that he endured. So why do people persecute us? Why? Well, there's lots of reasons. I think one reason is because some people are just uninformed. They just don't know. Ever read somebody who tells you that the Bible was full of made-up fairy tales and half-truths? Then you ask them, well, have you read it? And they say, no. I think our job is to inform them. I mean, seriously, why not just buy them a Bible and ask those people, could you just read the Gospel of Mark with me? Let's talk about the life of Jesus, since you really don't know much about him. That might be a great way to be a witness for Christ in the middle of persecution. I know you run the risk of getting persecuted more because you're not shying away and going and hiding in a corner, but I think that's the point that Peter is trying to make. That persecution should not make us cower. But that persecution brings up the Spirit of God within us and upon us and beside us so that we can be witnesses to Jesus. Jesus. And some people persecute us because they simply do not agree. Because they're Buddhists, or they're Hindus, or they're Muslims. And you know what? It's okay to argue with those people respectfully in love. It's okay. You're going, that doesn't sound very fun. No, persecution is not fun, folks. Witnessing for Jesus isn't always fun. It gets people into trouble. But we're talking about persecution. But we should not be afraid because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and upon us, and we can argue respectfully lovingly with people. Read the new apologetics book by Doug Groteis. I think every argument you need is in that 750-page book. Or just get one, keep it at home, and when a question comes up you can't answer, you can go home and look up the answer. The Internet's a great place for, honestly, some of this kind of information. Some of it's weird. You've got to be careful. But let's not be afraid to argue with people respectfully. What Jesus did, he argued with people And there's sometimes persecution comes from religious people, and by that mean, I mean people more religious than you. I've experienced this. Uh, Christianity Today did a uh, online article about the time several years ago where I allowed a poem to be spoken at Christmas Eve that contained the F bomb. A lot. And they wrote the article, it was in two or three parts. It actually ended up being four parts because they got so many responses to this article that a Christian pastor would allow such a thing to happen on a Christmas Eve. They were, now, Muslims don't read Christianity Today or go to visit its website, Out of Ur, right? Or Out of fur, if you want to remember where the website is. Out of er, you are, or out o, fur. There you go. They had so many responses from Christians, some of which were in favor, some of which were not in favor. The most vehement responses were from people more religious than me. My daughter Katina is getting married on a beach in Florida, and I am so upset by these responses, that I'm in the hotel room responding on my computer to their responses to the article. My wife comes in, she goes, what is wrong with you? Your daughter's getting married in an hour on the beach. You're supposed to do the ceremony. Like, what are you doing? She was right. I shouldn't have wasted any time on them. I should just ignore them. And I'll say this, if people more religious than you come after you because of your faith in Christ. Just ignore them and go do what you need to do. Thank you. And then some people persecute us because we've sinned against them, because we're not perfect, right? They're unaware. They may be ignorant of the fact that the Christians mess up or that we don't think we're holier than thou. I mean, some people are uninformed and they think, Oh, you Christians, you all think you're better than everybody else. And in which case, the right response is to inform them and say, no, honestly, just the opposite. We think we're worse than everybody else. Ever been to a church? Look who's there? I mean, there's like the dregs of society. We're all messed up. We all need a crutch. No, we don't need a crutch. We need an emergency medical transport system just to get through life. We need Jesus really badly. And we mess up. See, we're a bunch of sinners. That's why we need grace from Jesus. So, not only are you uninformed, right? But if I've offended you, if I've sinned against you, I want to say I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I repent. I'll try to do better next time. So if you've offended somebody, repent. Turn around. Ask their forgiveness. And go on. Let's go to verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And that all who suffer are sharing in Christ's sufferings. If you are suffering because you made an ass out of yourself at the dinner table at Christmas, you're not suffering for Christ. You're suffering because you're stupid. All right? Peter's saying, look, lead a life that is pure. This this list kills me. Ready? Doesn't want you to be a murderer. Okay, I get that. That's easy. Doesn't want you to be a thief. Don't take other people's stuff that doesn't belong to you. Okay, I get that. Or any other kind of criminal. Okay, pretty easy to understand. Or even as a meddler, I'm going, did he know his congregation or what? Does he know Christians or what? We are constantly meddling in affairs that aren't ours. Why does the culture hate us so much? Sometimes because we keep telling them how to live according to Jesus when they don't care about Jesus. We don't need to impose a Christian morality on a pagan culture. It doesn't work. It feels like meddling. And they're right. We're supposed to love those people unconditionally. Like God loves us unconditionally. We're not supposed to tell them to straighten up their acts so they can be acceptable to Jesus because we couldn't even do that. All right. And the word Christian appears in verse 16. You know that this is only one of three times the word Christian appears in the New Testament? It's because it was a fairly new term at the time. People were calling these Christ followers, these people of the way, these... Jews who had sometimes, somehow, followed a new Messiah. They didn't know what to call them, so they made up this term called Christians. And it was kind of a slam. It was kind of a a derogatory term. And so the Christians of that day said, okay, fine. You know what? You want to call us Christians? Fine. Okay, we'll be Christians. It's okay. Just like people 14 years ago said, Ah, you want to treat us like scum of the earth? That's okay. We'll just call ourselves scum of the earth. That's how that happened. It is how that happened. And so he's saying, don't be ashamed to go by the name of Jesus. It's not a term of contempt as far as you're concerned. Verse 17, and this is the difficult one. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, just so you know, the Greek word for judgment in here, has the definite article. It's the judgment. Capital T-H-E, capital J-U-D-G-E-M-T. It's the judgment. He's talking about the end of all things. The big judgment. The big throne in the sky judgment where everybody is brought before the Lord and their deeds, their words, and their thoughts come to account. That's what he's talking about. So he's saying everybody is going to be judged. And we know that from the Old Testament. We know that from the New Testament. Not a surprise if you have read your Bible. But you're asking yourself, wait a minute, no, but didn't Christ take on the judgment of believers upon himself? How can Peter take on Such a gloomy perspective. Doesn't Peter believe in grace? Does it mean that if I'm persecuted, that I'm still sinful and that some of my sins haven't been forgiven? That I'm in need of judgment? Well, I think if we had that perspective, then it would just add guilt to us, right? Which... Was supposed to be taken away at the cross. Here's the deal you cannot read a sentence like this out of context of everything else Peter has said in this letter. You cannot take a sentence like this out of the context of everything else he said in everything he's written, or what you read about him in Acts, or the whole New Testament. You've got to take this in context. Of course Peter knows that his guilt and shame were paid for by Jesus. Nobody knows this as much as Peter knows this, who denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. After having lived with him for three years. So he's not saying that it 's our sins that are going to be judged what he 's saying is is that when judgment comes upon us when suffering comes upon us, it is not for judgments it 's not for condemnation 's sake but it 's for sanctification 's sake it 's for your purity 's sake it 's for you being transformed into the image of jesus sake that 's Why judgment comes on God's house first. Why does He allow us to be next door to people who hate Christianity and hate the church? So that He can form us more fully into the image of Jesus, who loves those kind of people without hesitation. If you read the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus, in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, has some things to say to the seven churches there that sound a lot like judgment. I've got this against you. You're doing this okay, but you know, you've really left your first love over here, which is me. You better stop doing what you're doing and start getting the right stuff for me. Jesus is not fooled. He knows what we're like. But we're not going to be condemned because of that. No, we're going to be sanctified. He's trying to call us up to a higher place, to be better people, to be more like Him, more loving, more helpful, more serving, more kind, more compassionate, more truthful than we ever have been before. In this passage, Peter has three ways of looking at persecution. First, he calls it a test of faith. It's that fiery ordeal. It's that purification. Once we've gone through it, we know we're committed. See, Jesus knows how committed we are, but we don't know how committed we are until he lets us go through a little bit of trial, suffering, and judgment. Do you understand? He needs you to know where you are. And so he takes you through it. And when you go through, you're going, whoa, wow, I can't believe it came through that," And I still love Jesus. I'm not shaking my fist at heaven at the moment. In in the past, I would have been shaking my fist at this guy going, you dirty God. Look, I made it. I'm here. You guys ever have those periods in your life where you look back and it was so difficult, but you grew so much from it, you would say to people, you know what? As hard as that was, those first years of marriage were so difficult. But look where it's brought us. You know, when I think back on how poor we were, we had no money for a table or chairs. We had to use that old rickety stove that was in the apartment, open it up, sit on the floor, and use the stove stove be called door as a table. You know, those are some difficult times, but they kind of gleam like gold in my memory. I wouldn't trade those times for a million bucks. I wouldn't give you a nickel for any more of them, but I wouldn't trade those times for a million dollars. Second, Peter looks at trials as identifying with the sufferings of Christ. I mean, we follow a crucified Savior. You believe in a God who was killed. If they did that to Him, they're going to do it to us. Because the student is not above his or her teacher. And the slave is not above his or her master, if they did these things to him, they're going to do it to us. And in that way, we complete the sufferings of Jesus because we are his body. His body is here on the earth. Jesus is still going through suffering in as much as he identifies with us individually and corporately. We are his kids. And he will judge the world for how the world treats us. Isn't that a scary thought? To think that some people will be in danger of hell for the way they treated you. That just grabs me, I think. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on my persecutors. Bring them to a knowledge of your saving grace. Third, suffering is a discipline or a judgment which shows that we are, in fact, part of God's family. The final judgment has begun, but it's begun with the purification of God's church, God's people, just as happened in the Old Testament. One reason to worship is because suffering is for our good. And we get to judge ourselves, really. We get to judge ourselves. We get to repent. He gives us that option. Suffering causes us to look at our lives. The idols that we've created. Because what happens when you're going through suffering? You look for some relief. Because what you want is the chocolate frosting side of the donut. You don't want suffering. But when suffering comes, you start to do this moral inventory of your life. Like, okay, what's going on? Did I screw up someplace? Whatever. You know what? That's okay. Because suffering brings up to the surface the idols we hold. Sometimes... They're idols of identity. I was reading a blog this week from a woman who all of her life had wanted her Ph.D. in English literature. Really smart woman. I mean, she doesn't get a full ride from a very prestigious Ivy League university to get a Ph.D. But she had a husband. She had kids. She had uh, a community where she was involved, and this would cause everybody to be uprooted and And gone, and so she had to weigh, do I really want this Ph.D.? Why do I want this Ph.D. so badly? And this is going to sound weird, but in addition to the fact that she loved her discipline, loved reading, loved writing, wanted to find out as much as she could about her discipline, the other reason that she wanted a Ph.D. is because she didn't want to be lonely. She wrote this herself. I didn't want to be lonely. She wanted the company of other Ph.D.s. People who loved Yeats, people who loved Keats, people who loved James Joyce, people who loved all those British authors. And she wanted to be able to confer with them and write papers with them and respond to them back and forth. She liked that camaraderie and she goes, you know what? Basically, an idol in my life was this identity of myself as a Ph.D., Some people have comfort as an idol. You know, when when suffering comes upon you, what you want to do is you want to go on vacation. You want to get away from it all. Because you're feeling hurt, you're feeling beleaguered, you have an idol, you don't want to confront it, you just want to escape. Get some more comfort. Suffering puts you in touch with that idol in your life. For some people, it's security. You don't want to take the chance of starting a new business. Even though you think God's leading you in that direction, because you like to walk by sight, as opposed to walking by faith, you want that paycheck guaranteed coming in every Friday. And security is your idol. You are not about to trust Jesus in the way that he's leading you to start a new business. Now you notice, I'm not going into the regular idols we normally talk about. You know, alcohol, drugs, sex. I've covered all that. There's been plenty of suffering to talk about up to now. I'm talking about the good idols, quote-unquote. Pleasure. Passions. Tim Keller says, an idol is an object of worship from which we draw false meaning, value, purpose. Oftentimes the idol is a good thing, elevated to a God thing. There are three kinds of idols, personal idols, money, romance, family, friendship, self-expression, There are religious idols, doctrine, morality, self-righteous behavior. There are cultural idols where everyone is right. I'm okay, you're okay. Where truth is personal. I don't want to have to tell anybody they're wrong. Cultural idols where feelings rule as opposed to What's right? You see, it's a hard thing to be saved. We are a mess of idols, spiritual contradictions, evil intentions, besetting sins. We're a mess. Church. And probably scum of the Earth is a bigger mess than most churches. It's not easy to battle sin. If the Christian life is too easy for you, then you better do some checking on yourself. You need to check up from the neck up. As the preacher said. It's not easy to battle sin for a lifetime. It's not easy to keep a passion for serving Jesus decade after decade after decade. It's not easy to be content in a congregation when you see God, the Father, bless other people in ways that you want to be blessed, but He's not blessing you like that right now. It's hard to be saved. The struggle that you have to follow Jesus is evidence that you're in the right direction. Hard and difficult is the new normal. Last verse. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. This commit, this word, is the same word that Jesus used from the cross when He said... Father, into my hands I commit, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's Psalm 31, 5. It's what he was quoting. It's what many Jews said as a prayer every day. Suffering according to God's will. Suffering reminds us of the good that Jesus' suffering has done for us. Suffering can cause us to be more compassionate and more empathetic to those who are going through suffering. Suffering makes us consider how maybe we ourselves have caused other people to suffer. And suffering ourselves can cause us to repent of the suffering that we have caused others. When you finally realize, oh my gosh, you know, I've been holding this against this other person, and now I'm suffering because I've done the same thing. And suffering helps us to be more cautious with our thoughts, words, and actions in the future. Most of you know that I went through a pretty long period of suffering, about 18 months. I call it my uh, submarine in the bottom of the ocean time. I felt like one of those World War II submarine movies where, you know, you have to go dive to the bottom and send up an oil slick to make everybody think you're dead because there's so many depth charges coming after you and you think you're going to die. We had a really hard time for about 18 months. Everything was gray. Everything was brown. There were no bright colors. It was really, really hard. We had several marriages that collapsed, some on staff. We had financial problems. Uh, We had people who were part of the congregation who were wonderful, who left for good reasons. Most of the time, they all, and you're going like, I think, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And during that period of suffering, what came up for me, the idol that came up in my life, was my idolization of you. Of the congregation. Of the flock. Because I thrive on relationship. I love scum. I love singing. I love, you know, preaching. I love being at church. But I'll tell you what I love even more is like the potluck after this thing. When we're all sitting around a table, we're all eating, we're joking around, talking to each other. That to me, that's a bit of heaven right there. I love that. And what is Jesus doing for my sabbatical? He is sending me to a gray, cold, wet, expensive wilderness (laughs) called England in the winter. And a lot of me doesn't want to go. And then my pastor says, and I want you to be off of social media. I'm going, it's like, what, no Facebook? Come on. That's relationship. I get to find out what's going on. I get to see pictures of people's babies. I get to interact with ideas. This is great. And you're saying, nope, I want you off social media for a couple of months. I'm going, oh, the suffering. (laughs) You mean you want me to interact with just you? No other idols in the way, no matter how good they are? He kind of smiles and nods. I don't know if you know this, but I was offered a free place to stay in England, and I turned it down for 10 months. And I finally said, yes, out of obedience. Because Jesus was trying to smash my idols through suffering. So... I want to ask you to consider these questions. If you want to go pray with somebody after the after the sermon, we'll have a team of people back over there in the prayer room, and think about these questions. And maybe you want to have some prayer. What idols overtake Jesus in your life? What are they? You probably know what they are. They might be good ones. Are you tempted to reject your suffering? Be careful because you may be rejecting God. What idols is your suffering exposing? How might God do some good using your suffering right now? And is there anybody you want to talk to about this more than Jesus? Feel free to pray with people when I'm done. Let me close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the words of the Apostle Peter on a topic that we would rather ignore, that of suffering. Thank you so much for his life, for him being a faithful steward, even in the middle of his own suffering, as he was led to be crucified upside down, for your namesake.